Welcome to this episode of The Rise After the Fall. I am Sean, the senior pastor at Life Church in Green Bay, and I am joined as always with my favorite human on earth, the honorable right reverend Sonny Rose Hennessy. Hello. Hello. You Thank didn't you. you didn't know that I was gonna use your middle name, did you? No. Now everybody knows it. I'm Sonny Rose. You are. Or as I was called by my family, runny nose. Runny nose. And or- I don't think it's because I had a runny nose. I think they thought it was clever. <laughs> Or from your Uncle Dave, Sunny Rose, the only flower that grows. Yes. It's so yes. interesting the things that you remember that are imprinted upon you. I think that's positive and negative, mm-hmm. which is one of the things that really prompted the formation of the exchange collaborative that spearheaded the formation of the reserve is that we have a whole lot of people who are even listening to this right now who have things that have been imprinted on them that they may not even remember the the genesis of. Mm-hmm. And the minute you have a memory, uh, especially a, a negative memory, a traumatic memory, which we can suppress, the minute you have it, your brain begins to rewire and fire off and categorize that, tra- that trauma into a place of uh, reconciliation and and there's healing. And that's, we actually have seven people going through Journey to Wholeness, the intensive right now on the other side of the church in the Journey to Wholeness wing. And I, I thought about it, they were about 18 minutes in and I was uh, texting with someone who is going to be doing the Friday and Saturday intensive because we mm. split the lead team, which we'll talk about in a minute. And I, I said, we're excited for you to get here. And she said, I'm excited to be there. I'm doing my pre-work. And I said, well, the first group's 18 minutes in and it hit me. There are people that are having memories fire off in their brain for the first time in their life. And in 18 minutes, there, were, there was already uh, healing happening. Like that's how quick it happens. Yeah. Anytime that you unlock something, but I think on the opposite side is true as well. If you're not in the right atmosphere or environment and you unlock something, then it's going to recategorize and it will rewire your brain. I've said this on a previous episode, but I had a conversation with someone who I had been wanting to have this conversation with probably for about eight years. And, and this individual told me that he had, I want to say the word problems, but it wasn't the word problems. He had almost like baggage with Christian leaders. I think if he knew the word, he could use the word trauma. He had trauma with Christian leaders. And it said that he was having a difficulty leaning back into Christianity because he felt like most of his life, if not all of his life, Christianity had been weaponized against him. Mm. I haven't been able to get past that statement Mm. that Christianity had been weaponized against him. I don't think that God ever intended for Christianity to be a negative weapon. I do think it's intended to be a weapon. I mean, obviously scripture talks a lot about the Bible from a, from an offensive standpoint where, you know, it's the sword of the spirit that has the ability to cut through, but I don't think it was ever intended to be used as a negative, like a weapon of mass destruction. And it made me think back to the Persian Gulf, not to get political or sidetracked, but this idea of when we went into the Gulf war, we were there searching for weapons of mass destruction mm. and we didn't find them. And when we didn't find them, that leader lost his equity among people. And I think when you go searching for something that you think is there and you don't find it, then there can be this negative aspect. But when you go searching for something and you find it and you unlock it, then that's when healing can begin. And I I think one of the things that you and I have been talking about a lot has been this idea of deconstructing your faith. Talk about weapons of mass destruction and looking for them. I didn't have to deconstruct my faith. I came into it. I mean, I had a, a baseline, if you would, but I came up, I came up spiritual. And if you could see me using air quotes, I grew, I came up spiritual. My parents were seekers. So I want to give credit 
where credit is due, that my parents were seeking something different. They just didn't know what the finish line looked like. It'd be like I ran the Honolulu Marathon twice and it was grueling. It was so hard. I can't even put into words. And, and I trained for it. Like I trained the first time I ran it. I think I trained, I trained at least six months. And I started out slow. I started out half a mile run three times a week. Then it was three quarters of a mile, then a mile. And you build your way up is what I'm trying to get to. And then the last run that you do before you actually go, and it's like a, a week or a week and a half before the actual marathon is you run the 20 mile run. That's your last run that you do. And they say, if you can run 20 miles in a non-competitive type of atmosphere, then the, the juices of the competition, they will propel you the final six miles. I will say that's not true. Even in the midst of the competition of it, when I meet, when I reached mile 20, the first year that I did the run, it, it was like, this is the stupidest thing that I've ever done in my life. And I still have six miles to, I still have 10, I still have to run a 10 K and it was, I wanted to give up at the 20 mile because I was actually so discouraged. Cause I felt like I'd been given wrong information. And I wonder how many people have gotten to a certain point in their spiritual journey and they had had all of these things told to them. And then when the difficult times hit, that thing didn't ring true. And so they wrung their hands and they wanted to give up. They were like, bro, I got to mile 20 and you told me that my adrenaline would propel me the final six miles. Now, the difference is, had I tried to run 26.2 miles and it was just me by myself and I was aimless and I didn't have a path and there was no defined finish line. I wouldn't know what I was running towards. And so the, it wouldn't have mattered if I got to mile 20 and my adrenaline took over. My adrenaline could have taken over all it wanted. But if I didn't have a set point or destination of stop, it would have all been for naught. And so f- for my parents, they had they didn't really have a defined destination to stop at. They just knew that they didn't like where they were living. They didn't like what they were feeling. They didn't like what they were doing and they wanted something different. And so they tried all sorts of different things. And so for me, I had a, I had a spiritual, um, I wouldn't say start point. I, I had a spiritual framework. But when I discovered Christianity, I was like, bro, this is it. Like, this is totally it. When Scott Sneer from Salem, Oregon shared Jesus in the flesh with me, that's... uh. I think that's what happened for me is I, is I, uh, I met Jesus in the flesh. I don't know Scott anymore. I don't talk to Scott anymore. I haven't seen Scott in 25 years, but he made such an indelible impact on my life. He said he laid such a firm foundation in my life of what it really looked like to be a Christian, to be a Jesus follower. And he was, he was not perfect by any stretch. We smoked pot together. He smoked cigarettes. He drank alcohol he cussed way more than he should have. But it was the first definitive reflection of Jesus I had met in my life. And so we have this whole generation of people who are like my friend in this conversation who have, who have had a, a weaponization of Christianity against them that was this whole idea and concept of restrictions. So I didn't come into faith with a defined list of restrictions, I came into faith with a very clear picture of possibility. Well, and so the deconstruction popularity, I think, comes from or is driven by the people with the opposite experience as you. Totally. It tends to be the evangelical, which that there's podcast like called like, I mean, they're trying, they're they're trying to recover from being evangelical. Yeah. I mean, there's all I started checking into this and I'm like, oh yeah, this like people who were in Hillsong, New York, and now she has a podcast and then she's on this guy's podcast and this guy's the recovering evangelist, evangelical mm-hmm. and, and it's, and it's all about deconstruction and there's podcasts all over. Many of them, they grew up like in a pastor's home or they grew up with parents who were Christians. Um, the guy you're talking about who is like Christianity was weaponized. He grew up in Christianity. Yeah. You came from the outside world going, this stinks out here. I know what's out here. Yeah. And this message, this is where the hope is. The other thing that I think you you have different than that kid uh, 
raised in Christianity is you didn't hear pastors your whole life say things like, these two points are gonna change your life. How, right. I mean, once we were in Bible college, you and I, I can't, I can't even tell you from Bible college to now how many times I heard, if you will implement these three principles, it'll change. <laughs> now, if you're saying prayer, Bible, you know, fasting, okay, I agree with you. But like, you know, these are some of the things that are being weaponized, yeah. those words, which a, with a pastor who had good intentions that told someone at Hillsong, New York, this will change your life and pastors are different and Christianity and the expectation was set. Christianity and what we tell you will change your life. Whereas you came in and the guy, Scott was fallible. He wasn't perfect, but you saw hunger in him. So you had very little to deconstruct, but we have an epidemic now of deconstructing the church. And what's sad to me is that there is no conversation about reconstruction. Yeah, totally. It's just, let's devastate, divide, let's destroy. It's like mm -hmm. going into a house and saying, we're gonna start work. And we're, they just start sledgehammering walls out, but also hitting wire and plumbing right. and just keep destroying. And there's no framework. There's nobody of accountability, authority, theological knowledge in this world or construction knowledge saying, hold on, be careful of that wire. That's an important main line. Mm. Be careful of that plumbing. You're going to destroy the house forever. <laughs> flood it, yeah. No, you go in and you have to be sometimes as precise and as careful and detailed as when you are constructing mm -hmm. to deconstruct to a point where it's not demolished forever. And so we are in the reconstruction, the rebuilding business. Yeah. Well, I also think I came physically from a, a background where I've been incarcerated and- so I recognize what it feels like to be in bondage. I recognize what it feels like to be locked in a place that you don't want to be in and, and being willing to do anything to get out of that. And so spiritually, I understand what that feels like. So when I feel like I'm being put in bondage spiritually, I don't want to be in bondage spiritually because I, I don't want to be incarcerated. So at times I approached my spirituality the same way that I approached my morality after that. There were decisions that I made after I was incarcerated where there were things I wanted to do that I no longer was willing to do because I knew what the ramifications were. And so spiritually, I have, I have warning signs that I can recognize and that I can feel. And I can say there are things that I want to do that still feel good but I know that if I do this, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to have me locked up somewhere. And so I don't want to live my life incarcerated physically or spiritually. And yet you have a whole generation of people who grew up in the church. And like I look at our kids, our kids are the same way. Like our kids grew up in the faith. They, they would say they've, if you ask them, when was your, your moment where you became a believer? I think now they could at their age now, but I think, you know, at 15, 16, they couldn't have told you that. Like they've just, it's almost like somebody like Bill Gates kids. They can't tell you when they became wealthy. They've always been wealthy. They were born into it. So our kids don't understand what it is, you know, at the time, like they do now, but at the time growing up, they didn't know what it felt like to be incarcerated. They didn't know what it felt like to be in bondage necessarily. So that not that they never were in bondage or that they were never locked up by things they were, they just didn't recognize what that feeling was. So it was like, I feel sad or I feel desperate or I feel depressed or whatever that may be. And then you hit a certain age, I think in your faith where you go, hang on a minute. Those three points that you talked about, that's not true. If I do those three things, I'm still, I'm still feeling this or I'm still living this or I'm still in bondage. And so when you talk about this idea of deconstruction, I think that there's a generation that thinks that they're deconstructing, but like you said, they're demolishing. And you and I have been flipping houses for 25 years and there are times when you want to do demolition, right? There's a but wall. But you paint yeah. it instead. Yeah, well, the wall, <laughs> or there's a wall and you know that like there's no plugs on the wall. It's just a wall that's in the middle of the room. And uh, and, and you, like uh, I used to have this apartment when I was at, in school in Minneapolis, I used to have this apartment. 
and the apartment had not half walls. It had what it was a loft. You would you would love it. It was like hardwood floors and exposed ceilings. And it had these walls that kind of separated rooms, but there were no doors. And those those walls would go like a foot from the ceiling. And you've seen these things. Mm-hmm. And when I think back on those walls, I go, those walls, you can tear those walls down. They're nothing. You mm-hmm. tear them down. They're easy because obviously they're not load bearing. There's no electrical in them. There's no sink. There's no faucets anywhere nearby. So clearly there's no plumbing in that. But then there's been other times where I've wanted to do deconstruction. Like for example, we bought this building downtown De Pere and I wanted Isaiah to tear the plaster off the wall because I knew behind it, there was exposed brick. The problem was he started hitting the wall with a hammer and there were plugs on that wall. And so he texted me, he said, Hey, it smells like smoke in here. I said, bro, you need to stop. So, so I called a friend of ours who owns a construction company. I was out of town. I said, Hey, can you go over there and can you look? Cause he's an expert. So like you said, that there's times where you don't surround yourself with experts and that's what this whole generation world. wants to do. Yes. They want to separate themselves from the people who actually know what to do. So they're doing demolition rather than deconstruction. Right. And I, you called me out on this. You said, cause we've got some, you know, young adult age people, including our kids, you know, they're like, I don't know how I feel about and the church should do this. And, you know, and, and some of them are like, okay, obviously you have a valid point and you're a younger generation, but we have, we have some, you know, people in their twenties that you reminded me are exactly how I was. I was a spiritual zealot yeah. Because I had come back to my faith and then went to Bible college and I was smarter than every old dude who was preaching. I had better ideas. And yes, uh, if Isaiah would have kept going because he's young and strong and he can swing a hammer, yeah. the smoke is smelling. Are you going to pause and call in an expert? So good. Or are you going to just keep heave hoeing. And so that's what I did. And man, talk about the bridges you burn (laughs) when you're in your twenties and you walk around with a jackhammer, letting everybody know what's wrong with the church, what's wrong with this staff we work on. I had more um, issues with staff members and pastor's wives because I had an opinion about everything. And it was all framed in this holiness. This is, we're getting away from what the Bible, how church really is. That's one of the conversations (laughs) that came up even recently in some 20-somethings that were talking only with one another, not with us. Afterwards, we found out what their conversation was. And one of the quotes was, the church isn't even what Jesus intended. And I, I took the opportunity to say, I actually, we have a friend, Rabbi Matt, and his dad is a Messianic rabbi as well. And when Matt in the 90s had a bracelet on and walked up to his rabbi dad, and his dad said, what's that bracelet? And he said, what would Jesus do? Of course, they they don't call him Jesus. Yeah, Yeshua. They call him Yeshua. But he said, what's that? Well, what would Jesus do? And his dad goes, you know what Jesus would do? He'd go to synagogue. (laughs) And they don't even, the Messianic rabbis don't even call it a synagogue. So it's not like he was saying, look at me, come to my, he was saying, Jesus would have been in the synagogue. Yeah. And when Jesus said, do the church thing, follow the way, the format, and this is the other thing, is when you're in your 20s and then you're in your 30s and then you're in your 40s doing podcasts, deconstructing the evangelical church. And I mean, call, making it like the church has turned to sin because the methodology they think is faulty and the people are faulty. And I think, well, people are faulty. Yeah. Even pastors are people, so they're gonna be faulty. But it's it's more embarrassing when it's a 40-something that's wanting to just deconstruct and leave it there. Uh, But when the 20-somethings say, it's not even like how Jesus wanted it. And we've been to Israel and I've thought, I wish they would come and ask us, hey, how how did Jesus do church in the Holy Land? And you know what we'd tell them? Well, the synagogue, because we've been been at Magdala where you can see the floor that's left. The foundation is still there. You can see where the pulpit was. Yeah. Uh, We've been in a rebuilt, but very, it's in Nazareth. Uh, where in a village and area like Jesus would have went to synagogue growing up in Nazareth, but then Magdala, when he was doing ministry, he actually spoke in that synagogue. We saw the footholds, the the cornerstones of it uh, in Magdala, where Mary Magdalene is from. There's a place where there's a pulpit. 
There's seating that looks like an old school gymnasium, the kind from the 70s where they'd build in two risers out of wood on, you know, three corners and or three sides of a basketball court. Just so, so just like a couple layers of concrete or sandstone surrounding the pulpit. And Jesus himself would have, and they reenacted this in front of us. Jesus would have taken the scrolls from this basket. He would have come from the back curtain, the back of stage like we have now. He would have pulled out the the scrolls. He would have unrolled them and he would have read from the Torah. These are the Old Testament books of the Bible that were written. He would have rolled up the scrolls and he would have left stage right. (laughs) (laughs) And the people would have gotten up because they weren't, here's the deal. They weren't around tables. So everybody's like, we're deconstructing. We need to do table church. And we, it all sounds like good ideas, right? He, there were too many people in Nazareth. They said, this is a significant size synagogue, but they said people will sit like, like on bleachers at Lambeau. They will sit tightly in there. There could have been a hundred to 200 fit. That's a church, right? That's a Sunday morning feel hundred to 200. You know what? They go out the door where we would go out our church doors. And then if they're going to gather, they probably gather for dinner and around the table because the Torah was read. And I don't think they had a schedule. I get that. You know, church has it all. You know, maybe that's for the deconstructors. Like it's too formal and you have to get in a life group or a small group. All we're trying to do is facilitate breaking bread, being around the table, communicating and discussing what did that rabbi or rabbi Jesus just say? And we're going to discuss it. That sounds like church to me. Yeah. And it wasn't that they were against music. Music would have been a part of, uh, celebrations, which we love now as a church to have, like this is a celebration of worship. We're clapping, raising our hands. That would have been very common in a Jewish context. So we haven't done church wrong. And so- uh, yeah, I mean, they had they had music during synagogue. I mean, there was, it's a lot of stuff that is the same. I just had a conversation last night in the locker room with a player. Young guy, loves the Lord, comes to chapel, you know. He hadn't been in a couple weeks. So I I just kind of walked up to him and I said, hey, bro, how you doing, man? And instantly, he said, hey, man, listen, I know I haven't been coming, I haven't been to chapel. And he said, what did you talk about in chapel today? And I, I told him what the message had been. And he said, you know, I just, I love you. I just, I haven't, and we, we had like probably 20 minute conversation about what I had talked about in chapel. We had as long of a conversation about the chapel as the chapel was. It was crazy sitting at his locker. And, and he said, like, I love you. And I love, I love that. He said, but man, just like church, like I, like I tried to come to your church. It's just too big. Like I, I can't do the big church thing. He said, like, I feel like what you and I just did right here, like that was church. And I said, no, what you and I just did is had a conversation. We didn't just have church. You may have gotten the content of what the message was. I said, but like even all the way back when Jesus was walking the earth, they had church as we would call it. And then what you and I did, that was the supplementation. So when you're talking about they went and they sat around tables. So now we're wanting to do half of what it was right? So we're wanting to have the table talk, but we're not wanting to have the message. Which the rabbi leads from the Torah. And we're, you're right. I just want to cut in here. We're wanting the, not just deconstructors, people who are like, let me find the loophole that I want to change this and have it just be what I want. I want to have the table talk, but I want to have it with all the other 34 year olds I know. Without an expert there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want an expert there. And I also don't want to be talking about what the expert just said. And the expert was pulling from the Torah, the experts pulling from the Bible who has been trained in how to interpret or share it. Why do we want to, why does a deconstruction person want to cut out the expert, honestly, the Bible, because they say, well, no, we talk about the Bible, but you're talking about things like abortion, homosexuality, culture, and you want to like put it in the context of, yeah, well, I have a friend and then this happened and this person, yeah, my brother. And then, and like you've said all the time, whatever becomes personal, you become an expert on. Yeah. But the problem is if you're 34 and your brother comes out gay 
Now it's personal. So now you're looking for the loophole to change what you thought the Bible said. And then you've got other people coming from their context of, and and nobody's saying, but hey, wait, what about, let's just go to this scripture. Because when we're around a table, we want to be friends and we don't want it to be awkward. When we're in a synagogue or we're in a church and the Torah calls something out, the Bible says, this is a sin, the great thing about being in a big church, like you were talking about the guys, like I don't, it's too big of a church. Here's the benefit of a really big church. You can get called out by the Bible, not by the pastor. Right. And nobody has to know because there's no spotlight on you. It's a big enough place to hide and then let the, the spirit tell you where to hide the Bible in your heart to change you. Yeah. You're not exposed in that setting. It's valuable. Yeah, we sure like to compartmentalize our conviction. It's easy to be convicted about something until it gets really close. And then when something gets really close, our natural inclination is to excuse it. So I, I got to kind of describe to him, the, you know, the idea of the series that I did mutter, where, where the rabbi would take a particular passage of scripture and you would know what it was for the week before. And then you would, you would read that, you would chew on it, you would mutter on it. And then you would come back and then you would sit in a group and, and then the rabbi would go around and he would say, Sonny, what did you get from Isaiah 13? And you would say what you felt the Lord had told you. And then the person next to you, he would ask them, they would say what they felt like they had gotten and all the way around. And then at the end, and then it, what, but what was encouraged was debate. The thing that's beautiful about Jewish people is they love to debate and our Jewish friends will tell you that you can both be right and wrong at the same time. Two people can be right about something, but have different opinions, right? And so at the end of it, then the rabbi would say, okay, all of those things were beautiful and all of those things were meaningful. And the Lord probably did tell you that, but here's what the scripture says. So what the the beauty of it is that everybody is getting their own gleanings from the Holy Spirit. They're all sharing those, but they're also all correcting each other. So if you say something that's off mark, then that person who's your friend, incidentally, challenges you on your beliefs. And if they challenge you, that's because they love you. But we're in this generation that feels like if I challenge you, I don't love you. It's the total opposite of it. And so again, the danger in this movement of deconstructing your faith is that we aren't deconstructing, we're demolishing, we're destroying. And so you and I were talking about the idea of when you take a historical property and you want to redo that historical property, there are elements of that property that you want to maintain. So you can come into a house, like you sent me a a property in Iowa <laughs> and it, it was gorgeous. And the the character that was in it. You can't duplicate that. You know, it's got the massive three-inch crown moldings and then it's got built-in cabinetry with leaded glass. And you can't, you can't, they don't even make glass like that anymore. And if you broke a pane of that glass, you would replace it with something that was a reproduction of that. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be leaded glass. It may look like it, but to somebody who who works with leaded glass, they would be able to tell. Well, that's that particular pain. Somebody reproduced that. That's not, that's not original. And so when you go into a historical property that's valuable like that, you have to identify the thing before you start the deacon, the, well, most of the time you do demolish. So before you start the demolition process, you have to walk around that home or that piece of property and you have to identify the things that you think are worth saving. So you say, well, I want to keep that crown molding. Well, you don't, you don't rescue crown molding with a crowbar. You know, you, you have to go the, in with an exacto knife and you, and you have to cut the paint at the seam. And, and then you got to, you know, take a little very thin chisel and you got to get underneath the lip of that. And you got to slowly begin to pry that crown molding away. And so then you, you take away the pieces that you find are valuable and you set them to the side so that you can reuse them during the reconstruction process. Here's the thing, people who renovate homes, there's, there's two groups of people. There's people who renovate homes and there's people who tear houses down. I don't want to be somebody who tears houses Mm -hmm. down, although it would be fun. 
to be a guy who drives the crane that has the giant chain with the huge metal ball on the end. And it would get a lot of attention. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it would be so it'd be so satisfying at the end of the day. What would you do today? Oh, my God. We had this 122-year-old building, and I got in the crane, and I swung that, and that is gone. We tore it down. But but within that, you also tore down all sorts of memories and all sorts of history and all sorts of stories. And so when you come back and you deconstruct something with the intention of reconstructing it, when you take those elements that were worth saving and you and you repurpose them or you reuse them, then later on, when you come in, you go, oh, this is beautiful. Oh, yeah. But did you see the crown molding? That's original. That crown molding that's up there, that's 140 years old. And can you imagine the stories? Somebody hand sawed that. Like they went and they picked out the trees that became that crown. So now you've got this like beautiful story where two things, where things that are historic and things that are contemporary join together. And so now you have this whole movement of people who they don't want the historic they just want the contemporary. But the problem is the con- that a lot of the contemporary theology is theology that is allowing things that are unbiblical. I don't care how you slice it, homosexuality is a sin. There's a new movement that's trying to say, oh, well, you know, actually what that was saying is that when the Strong's Concordance, I was just having this conversation with Pastor Dallas last week. You know, when the Strong's Concordance was written, Actually, what the word sodomy meant was male-on-male rape. It, it didn't mean consensual sex. Men were allowed to have consensual sex. It was, they were trying to prevent men from raping men, particularly young men. Well, that's Pedophilia. to me, that sounds like somebody who has a liturgical background who found out about somebody who took advantage of a young boy, and now they're anti-church because They've heard about some church leader who did something to some boy who didn't want it done, some altar boy in a back room somewhere who's now scarred and he got a buyout from the church at large. And he's like so jaded by that that he's now reworked his theology. So I said to Pastor Dallas, I said, the problem with that theology is homosexuality is a sin in Judaism, Islam. Those things were around before the Strongs. So... Homosexuality didn't become a sin in the 19 blah, blah, blah when the Strong's Concordance was written because it was written by men who had an agenda. Homosexuality's always been a sin. Everywhere in scripture, it was a sin. And people, people, and listen, we don't talk about hot topics on here and somebody may listen, listen, and go, oh, they're homophobes. No, I'm not. I'm a cynophobe. I, I'm yeah. afraid to have sin in my life. And so whether that's homosexuality, whether that's fornication, like, hey, listen, sex before you're married is a sin. Yeah. Because when you have sex with someone, you are married to them. That is the Jewish understanding of sex. If two people have sexual intercourse, those two people are now married. So, so now a, you're committing adultery when you yeah. go on and you have sex with somebody else. Yeah. So I'm, I'm against sin, so I don't have to deconstruct anything. If I want to get rid of that particular idea of my theology, I have to destroy the whole thing because it's like the one lynch Well, don't pin. you see that's why maybe like we're thinking, oh, they're confused, they're deconstructing and they shouldn't and they don't know better. They're actually like, no, we have to deconstruct. Like the people who come in and say, look, I don't care about the crown molding, the amount of time it'll take to get that built in out, just Tear it down yep. because we're going to put MDF up. It's going to go up pre-painted. <laughs> yep. We're going to put in countertops that look like marble. They're not, but now they're Pergo. Pergo was the thing. Okay. Now it's gross, but at the time it was like, oh, this is what everybody's going to want. And so they're they're taking prefab. The goal has always been that they're not confused about. Oh man, deconstruction. I wonder if it'll get out of hand. They're like, no, this is the goal now. I think consciously some and subconsciously others, but that's what Satan's doing. Satan's not sad about deconstruction. He comes to destroy. So he's in this. And what is sad to me is is it's like cannibalism, that Christians are deconstructing the very thing Mm. that 
they have known. And, and so they're saying things, Christians like, I mean, I'm not saying I don't believe in God. And I do think it's a relationship with Jesus, but, and then they're destroying and they are taking out the, he is God, which means fear of God, which yeah. means whatever he says, including homosexuality, heterosexual sex outside of marriage. Like it's wrong. I don't think that pastors would say they think they should and could live with someone, but how many people do we have in our church that we're really needing somebody to head up the security team, Yeah, but they're living with someone? Well, the challenge is I think you do have a lot of pastors that would tell you that it's okay for you to live with someone because there's a spirit of compromise among the church today. Or yeah, pastors, Jen Hatmaker, which I didn't know she was a pastor, but she's an author who during COVID married a lesbian couple. And then people we know that are Christians shared the post. <laughs> I, and here's the deal. It is way easier to just let that become the norm and us go, oh, no big deal. No, it's a very big deal. Yeah. The Brian Houston thing's a very big deal. Big I'm time. not gonna minimize yeah. or say, well, now, you know, he's back on the circuit. And No, it was a big deal. And you're still not willing to say it was a disgusting sin that yeah. unfortunately took my wife out for ministry. But you know what? My sin's, just like God's grace and love will cover and his blood covers, Brian's sins covered Bobby's calling. Yeah. And and there's not a recognition. So now the board, the newest thing with their thing, their his newest yeah. gathering yeah. and announcement is that he's talking intricate details about how he now really didn't mean to resign and the board is the bad guy, which deconstruction is pointing fingers deconstruction is having, like you said early on, you didn't have um, a bunch of issues with Christianity because you came to it late. So your expectations weren't high. People's expectations were uh, not met. They were in the church. They were Christians. They were raised that way or they found it. Their expectations weren't met. And when we're not healed and whole, we point fingers rather than separate what is others, what is me, and what is God. A whole person categorizes what part of this is the devil, because that's truly a thing. What part of this is God? What part of this is fallen man? And what part of this is me? Like, can we separate in four buckets every situation that happens rather than saying, pull in the crane, we're just gonna take it because I'm definitely not to blame. I'm the victim here because victimhood is... it should be what it is. It's sad. So there was a woman who's a victim in the Brian Houston thing. She's not even talked about. She literally is a faceless being. There's a victim in these situations. So we should talk about the victim more than we do, but people love to be the victim. Mm. And then the victim mentality just balloons to where the only way to fix this problem, because I'm a victim, is to bulldoze it. Yeah. is to burn down buildings, to protest in the streets. Why are you, why did you set cities on fire because of the injustice and the hate that's that's out there? It made no sense, but when you're a victim, you don't think in common sense. You think in victimhood. Yeah, uh, I would be, I would caution someone who, who wants to start construction now, but has never apprenticed. Right, so my brother is a big construction guy. He builds billion-dollar buildings, but he had to he had to cut his teeth. He started out as a roofer, and then he was a framer, and then he was a trim guy, and then so he he's uh, he spent his whole life getting to the place where he's at. The, the challenge is we live in an HGTV and YouTube culture when it comes to construction, where you can watch an HGTV show and you can see how they do stuff. And then you can turn on YouTube and you can learn almost anything on YouTube. It's incredible. We had a, we have a sleep number bed and we moved and they, they took our bed apart. But when they took our bed apart, they broke our bed. And so when the sleep number people came to re-put it back together, the guy who does this for a living said that our bed couldn't be put back together, that it was destroyed, that we needed a new bed. So I wasn't willing to settle for that. So I turned on a YouTube video and I watched a six minute YouTube video on how to put a sleep number bed together. And I put the bed back together and it's fine. We can, we can kind of sleep on it. You, it, you can pump it up or deflate it. You can get it to your number. 
but you can't like lift the head or lift the feet. So it's partially, it's good enough to sleep on. The challenge is when you watch HGTV, those people build in whatever the trend is right now. So we have whole houses that are filled with one particular colorway or another colorway, or you have houses right now all across the country that are being built with, with faux shiplap because Chip and Joanna Gaines used shiplap. Well, if you watch the early episodes of Fixer Upper, Joanna Gaines started using shiplap because they didn't have any money. And when she would deconstruct properties, they would find shiplap behind the drywall. So she would take that shiplap, which is historical, by the way, and she would repurpose that or she would reuse that. Well, now you have people in Wichita who are using shiplap where they didn't use shiplap. So it's not historical there. It's a reproduction. It's not even real. Because shiplap, by the way, people, is from ships that were torn apart from coming overseas. So more port towns and Southern port towns. And then they would take the ship lap the ship boards, and then they would build the inside of houses. Right. So now what's happening is shiplap is getting out of style because too many people used it. So now, now you're going to, 10 years from now, you're going to have people who are taking shiplap off of walls, like it's paneling from the seventies. And what's interesting now is in the house design world that you, you know, you own your own design firm. So it's, you understand this way better than I do, but I've learned this even from watching you, is that trends always come back. And what's crazy now is that wallpaper is back. And five years ago, everyone took a heat gun and tried to take their wallpaper off their walls or they painted over their wallpaper. (laughs) And so in the construction world, you have trends that come and trends that go, and then those trends have a way of coming back. But in the spiritual world, you have 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 a a very parallel type of Mm -hmm. thing where we have a whole generation that has been raised on podcasts and TikTok. And so now they're getting their faith in 12-second segments. And so now everybody wants to subscribe to and listen to Stephen Furtick's whatever his latest um, the clip is that he puts on there. The problem is the the clip that gets put on TikTok of Stephen Furtick is whatever little portion of that message that made everybody in the room shout and makes you, when you listen to it, that's like the most quotable successories line in his message. The problem is When you listen to whole Stephen Furtick messages, Stephen Furtick isn't the champion of compromise. Stephen Furtick is hard on sin. I mean, he's a Baptist for crying out loud. Like he is hard on sin. Like I've listened to whole Stephen Furtick messages where I was like, bro, this dude is way more intense and in your face than I ever thought that he was. And so here's what's happened is you have a whole generation of people who have been brought up on podcasts and TikToks and in palatable lines, but now the trends are wanting to come back. So the whole idea of this compromising gospel that has been attractional to our generation isn't attractional to this generation. And so there's like this huge, even pendulum swing where people are not only wanting to go back to something that has standards, they're wanting to go back to things that have uh, rituals even. And there's a huge push among young millennials who even are wanting to go back to the, the liturgical faith because to them, it's it's got it's gets a meat to it. Yes, because and I agree. I think uh, some people that say, "Oh, I love Stephen Furtick," they've never listened to a full message ever. Right? They totally do, but they can watch it on the things you said. But then they're like, "Okay, now I feel like I'm growing in my faith," yeah. and they're stirred up. And we had a, a couple of people that they were loved our church. We're going here early twenties, a couple that I don't think they were married, but they were dating. And they decided because she said church shouldn't be this enjoyable. She (sighs) said, I want to go back to my parents' Catholic church. And he's like, really? He's like, I don't know that I can do it. She goes, you know what? There needs to be some suffering here. We're enjoying this way too much. Our church. That's insane. And it happened and he wasn't happy about it. And he, his whole demeanor changed. And yet 
she got her way and they attend the Catholic church and not ours because they want, wanted to hurt another um, group of young adults recently. They started going to very, very tiny churches, like had to go more rural Wisconsin, um, smaller churches. They really were looking for a place that was more Pentecostal. Like they wanted to be laying out on the ground at yeah. the end of service. They wanted, they didn't know literally when you'd, if you would say, well, you want to be in slain in the spirit? No concept. What do you mean slain in the spirit? Yeah. Like they didn't live the life we lived. They were like, well, I just got to feel more because, because it's a trend. You're right. The trend is changing again, but the core principles, and, and let's go back to when you said the crown molding, when you said about slicing the paint and then using a smaller, not a crowbar, but a smaller tool to get underneath the lip of the crown molding. I was thinking about, uh, that's where when we started, we needed to ask somebody or bring somebody in just to get the crown molding out, to get the yeah. build out of the leaded glass wood Garfield, like the Garfield movie had that built in, if people yeah. can imagine that, how to get that out. We would have gotten an expert in and even needed to pay them with the little money we had to do it right. Mm -hmm. Where people are missing is, and you said that in your Mutter message and series, which people should go on and listen to the Mutter series, that people would talk about the word not even at the scripture, not even after you preach it. Like, what's your, what's your opinion about the pastor? That's not it. Yeah. What's your opinion about the rabbi? That's not, it. no, here's first the scripture. What do you think? But the ultimate, like probably the best interpretation of the scripture, we're gonna hear from the rabbi, the pastor. We're gonna bring them in to give us expert advice at the end. Not, we're gonna take their expert sermon and yeah. deconstruct it and leave it laying there. We're gonna actually wait and have the expert at the end. Yeah. Or better yet, let, let's have the expert come in, tell us about the crown molding. Have the expert come in, tell us what we need to know about scripture. Then we do our thing. And then we have them come back and say, now tell us how to put that crown molding back up. So good. Now tell us, did we get this wrong as we talked about? Well, we we think that Strong's concordance, because Dallas, to be clear, people, Pastor Dallas wasn't saying he agreed with no, that theory. He all. was saying he was told this is what somebody yeah. thought they found out. First of all, Strong's concordance is not the oldest thing to go by anyway. Right. Strong's yeah. is not the, the say all. The Bible is. Good catch. I wasn't trying to imply that. No, not at all. I knew that. But the bookend of expert, do your thing, do your talking, we want that. The We're to work out our faith and fear and trembling and then the expert at the end. I want to, I know we're needing to bring it to a close, but I wanted to point us to Nehemiah. Yeah. Because Nehemiah, he wasn't the one who deconstructed the wall around Jerusalem. When the people were exiled, his own Jewish people were exiled. They were exiled. They were, that means taken um, forcefully out of the very city that they were, that's theirs, Jerusalem. And so when Nehemiah went to the Persian king and said, can I go and work on this wall? Because a couple others have gone before me. It's not happening. And I'm getting reports that the the wall is in ruins. It, it's, it's just shattered and nobody's done anything about it. Nehemiah, it says he was like moved to yeah. compassion. It messed him up to know it's still a mess over there. And he yeah. worked for the Persian king where the you know, part of this whole exile. And there's four points that I want to leave us with um, when it comes to reconstruction, because Nehemiah never deconstructed. Number one, he took action with when others complained and wallowed in self-pity. The reason he got word it was crushed and destroyed and still there is because everybody was talking about that. Everybody was talking about how bad it was, was mad at all of the other kingdoms that didn't help or did destroy it. Number two, he was sad, but he couldn't sit by and watch or hear about it anymore. He was moved. The scripture said he was moved with mm. the compassion. I feel like that's what the exchange collaborative is. So good. That's what the reserve. So we were moved with compassion to do the exchange collaborative and we've flown Becky all over. I mean, the exchange collaborative is its own 501c3. It's not Life Church do, just doing this. This is, we've got to now raise money for this other thing. Yeah, what we're the hiring heck? Becky to come. So we hire yeah. Journey to Wholeness, yeah. which now the beyond the 920 is its own LLC. We hire, pay for Becky and hire her to come all over because the Exchange Collaborative is seeing the need, moved with the compassion and just can't sit around and be sad. I mean, I we'd work with Brian and Bobby Houston in a second. Right now. Right now, come on. There's some pastors that we are getting to work with that others would know. Yeah. 
I mean, you if you Googled, you wouldn't even need to Google. You would know who we're working with. Uh, we were moved by compassion to say, we'll be there. We'll be in that city next week. Yeah. Barry, Becky, Sean, I, we're there. But then we were moved to compassion even more. And we said, we need a place because yes, we're bringing people to Green Bay. We're sending Becky somewhere that is needed and necessary. She's building up more facilitators to travel and to be at Life Church. But we were moved with compassion to get the retreat center in North Carolina. Yeah. And it is a, it is an easier place. Not that people in need have to be convinced, but there, there are a lot more churches in the area of North Carolina and driving distance than Green Bay. We are, yeah. we've always felt like we're a bit of a mission field up here. And also all our, all hours, all months of the year, North Carolina, the weather is good enough that yeah. you can utilize the whole 20 acres, all of that. Number three, Nehemiah asked the king of Persia the permission, but he also asked God to be upon him. We are like, God, we need your favor because this is some crazy stuff. Why would we go out and have to raise money to do something when we're, we're fine? We're in Life Church, we're in Green Bay, we've got things going in Toronto, we're good. But we just, we just know we have to. And Nehemiah stepped out and had to ask a king and then went, God, I'm really gonna need you. And then number four, he used his leadership and organization skills to gather those who were already invested in this mission and just hadn't been commissioned to lead and rebuild the wall. Uh, he went into Jerusalem and didn't just go, I'm a great leader, so I'm just gonna start doing this or I'm great at construction yeah. or I've done this before. Like for us, we went through rehabilitation, restoration, but we're not like, oh, listen to us. We're great. We did it. We're like, okay, let's lead the way. But Nehemiah organized different tribes to be at different parts of the wall, different yeah. Jewish portions and families to do different portions of the wall because he couldn't do it himself. And he wanted to do it in record time. Why? Because the need was there. We want to be able to do this faster because we don't want to work with someone who fell this year but we can't get to them for 12 months to 18 months. Yeah. There's a job to do. And so we've commissioned and the half of the, I said, I was going to say this at the beginning <laughs> that we would get to the lead team. This week we have half of the lead team here over the course of the, the week. And the other half of the lead team will be with us in North Carolina in the late winter, early spring. They're doing intensives first. Some yeah. of our lead team have already done intensives. Some of our lead team are facilitators on Journey to Wholeness. But we have half of them that here this week and then we split them again and seven and seven are doing the beginning of the week and the end of the week because we're gonna get healthy and whole first and then their part in building the wall is making sure that we have watchmen, watchwomen on the wall looking out saying, there's a need. I'm in Las Vegas, but I know somebody in California. I'm in Sacramento. I know somebody down down the road in a church that needs this so that we have watchmen and watch women out there. Yeah, somebody had to tell Nehemiah that the wall had been broken. He, he was somewhere else. But when they came to him, I love that you said he was moved with compassion. That, that term is used over and over again in reference to Jesus, that Jesus was moved with compassion. It's clearly clearly a biblical theme that Nehemiah was heartbroken over the the deconstruction, that it wasn't deconstruction, it was demolition, which again, this generation, they're not, most of them aren't deconstructing, they're just uh, demolishing or destroying. And I wonder if you're a leader and you're listening to this, I wonder what are you doing uh, that's making someone want to deconstruct their faith? And if you haven't asked yourself that question, you probably should ask yourself that question because you may not know that you're causing people to deconstruct their faith, but I don't want to do things that would cause people to do that. But then where you had talked about that Nehemiah had a plan and the plan didn't happen overnight. It took him a long time, months to come up with that plan, but he had a very defined plan, which I think was one of the things that really impressed the king is that when the king asked him, well, what should we do? Boom, here's the plan. And so the second question that I would have for the leaders who are listening to this are, are what's your plan for restoration? Not just for others, but for you. Because some of the people who are listening to this, 
They didn't intentionally deconstruct their faith. They destroyed their faith. They destroyed their faith with a bad decision. They destroyed their faith with a lack of accountability, with a lack of people being around them, with a lack of having authority over them. And so if you're a leader and you're listening to this, just know that we have a plan if you don't. Mm -hmm. And that plan, as you just said, Pastor Sonny, is uh, the reserve and it is the exchange collaborative. And we would love to play a part in your life if you need somebody to to reconstruct what you have destroyed, then please let us be a part of that. And so if you're not a leader or a pastor and you're listening to this and you are in the process of deconstructing your faith, we would love to play a role in helping you with that. But if not us, would you please find somebody who knows more than you, who can help you with the deconstruction process and start labeling the parts so that they can put them back where they go when it's time to reconstruct. But nevertheless, we love you and we're grateful and want you to know that no matter where you are in your journey, there is a rise after the fall. Hi, friends. It's Sunny again. And I just want to say, Sean and I appreciate your faithful listening. And we hear all the time that Many of you are sharing this. In fact, we've had a few people say, I tell everybody I know, specifically other pastors and leaders about this podcast. And so we may have shared in our early season two episode about the story of getting a retreat center that we're now going to call The Reserve, uh, 20 acres, multiple houses, and the ability to house pastors and leaders, their families. We're going to basically say we're hosting the hurting, we're hosting the betrayed, we're restoring the betrayer. Uh, and so now we have a campus to do that on, a a 20-acre property to do that on, as well as we'll continue to bring people into Green Bay and we provide um, help in the finances for that and the housing for that at times as needed. Also, we'll continue to go to people. We've done that over the last couple of years, flown directly to couples in crisis. That's been an ongoing thing that Sean and I, Pastor Becky, Pastor Barry have done. But what I wanted to ask you is that um, because this retreat center is $1.8 million, which actually for 20 acres, a massive house, other housing uh, it's really reasonable. We just happened to find it in a great location. And the person who's selling it to us has a ministry heart. He's on the board of the church that we interned at coming right out of Bible college. It's just crazy, the God story. But we need to get $600,000 as the down payment. Now he's going to spread that over the first year. So it's 54,000 a month. Whew. Then after that, the 1.2 million that we will finance with him, those payments will start and that's in the 70 some hundred dollars. So $7,000 a month plus utilities and expenses, but that's much more palpable than 54,000 a month. But for this first year, we're grateful that we didn't have to come up with 600,000 to even begin work on the property. We already own it. We're already doing construction, but... What I would ask you is if you would consider, and you may say, it's me. I have, you know, $100,000 put away for our church that we are going to start construction on something. Or you may say, I have $1.8 at the church I lead and we were breaking ground. But I feel, <laughs> this is the crazy thing. I've heard some crazy stories about pastors who after having the money or praying for the money, and they get it for something God's having them do, God told them to give it away. But then God exceeded their expectation and they came back and had eightfold, ninefold. I know of a church in Texas, this just happened. Uh, they gave a million dollars they had raised to break ground on a new property. And the, someone had been at this conference with them and they had a roof that had caved in and it was a million dollars to repair it. And God told him, give the million dollars. Well, he did. And within a few weeks, they had a company come to them and offer them money for the land and to give them land they owned. And they basically were given about $8 million. 
from their million dollars they gave away. So I just know that when Sean and I even have given $1,200, which was our first big gift when we were first married at a conference and God told us give everything. And we had $1,201 in our bank account, which was a ton for us. It was like our savings. We gave it, we got home and we had a check in our mailbox for $1,250. Now we made $49 on that, but it increased our faith. We made a lot of return on our faith and that investment and knowing God will never ask us to give that he doesn't have a huge plan. So I take this time to say, you might be the one that says, we're going to give you 1.8. You'll never have to worry about money as you do this ministry. You might say, we're going to give you 600,000 for the down payment so that you don't have to stress for the first year at 54,000 a pop as you build it out. Or you might say, we're going to give monthly or we have something else in mind. Thank you for considering it. Thank you for stepping out in faith and thank you for being a faithful listener to this. We appreciate you.